If you would turn with me in your copies of God's Word once again, we turn this time to the Gospel according to Luke, Luke chapter 1. We'll begin our reading there at verse 68. Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 68. Hear once again the word of our God. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. And he hath raised up and born of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he hath spoken, spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which has been since the world began, that he should, that we should be saved from our enemies, and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us, that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and waxed strong in his spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel. Amen. May once more the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Behind this moment stands, of course, a larger historical context, one that was fraught with anticipation. As we remember from the book of Acts, Gamaliel tells us that many anticipated the coming of the promised Messiah. In fact, so many that false messiahs arose, claiming to be the one promised of old, promised by God, claiming to be the one who would deliver Israel from her bondage. And so these ones would argue that they were the Messianic King, the Son of David who would come, and whose scepter would never be broken. And of course, these false messiahs arose, they they gained some kind of following. And as they sought to overthrow their Roman overlords, they perished, slain by the sword or crucified. Time and time again, this happened in the first century. And you see, friend, what's striking about that is not just that there were false messiahs, but that there were so many at this day and age who were quite willing to entertain a counterfeit Christ and a false redemption. You see, they wanted to be rid of a Roman overlord. And so anyone who had promised that kind of carnal freedom, they would quickly enlist as his disciples. But the text that we come to this morning tells us that the true Messiah, the true Messiah would bring about a redemption entirely different. One that those who followed those false messiahs had no interest in. And really, friend, that's what stands behind not just the text that we take up this evening, but really the entirety of the Gospels. 
to set before us the true Christ and the real redemption that is wrought in him. Because, friends, believe it or not, still in the 21st century, we do, we do hanker after false Christs. We look for false redemptions. We look for other kinds of messiahs that will bring us other kinds of gifts. And the gospel writers, writing under inspiration of God's Spirit, offer us a corrective. Chase no other Christ. Seek no other salvation. And friend, that message comes very clear in our text this morning. You remember in chapter 1, we have that wonderful testimony given in that solemn moment in the temple. That a son would be born to Zacharias and Elizabeth. A son whose name was John. Now friend, John is not so important as what his name signifies. Remember that. The name John there means God has been gracious. And so in chapter 1, the entirety of the events here are under this idea that the world is now going to see in flesh and blood that that is true. That God has indeed been gracious to his people. It comes first of all through the Lord's forerunner, through John. And then of course, through Christ anticipated. And in our text this morning, verses 76 to 80 of that chapter, we can't miss this. We're warming to that moment where the fullness of that revelation will be made known. The birth of Christ. Now friend, as we look at this text, we can't miss that this is really the climax of chapter 1. The words that we have before us this morning. Really, everything has been anticipating this moment when Christ would emerge in the clearest light. And the world would see that John, this forerunner, really was pointing to the fullness of the grace of God revealed in in the face of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, beloved, as we look at this text, we can't also miss either that not only is this a moment that is really the apex of chapter 1, but this is really supposed to be for us the moment in which the entire Old Testament warms to its climax. It's a striking thing, isn't it? Now before we're taken to Bethlehem, the inspired historian takes us first to a temple. Really what was the, the pinnacle of the Mosaic administration, where, where God would dwell among his people in a ritual way, the tabernacle and later the temple, that God would be truly Emmanuel. That's where the writer takes us first, to a scene in the temple. And then in our text this morning, we come to what was the apex of revelation for the church under Abraham. Circumcision. Where in that right, the work of Christ was typified. The, the circumcision of the heart shown how it would come about to the redemption accomplished by the Son of God. He takes us first of all to the temple, then to the highest ritual of the old covenant church, before he takes us to its fulfillment in Bethlehem. We can't miss that, friend. No, no, there is no extraneous detail in the Word of God. Everything here points to Jesus Christ and the greatness of redemption we found in Him. Now, if we look at our text this morning, of course, we are still in that moment where Zacharias, under inspiration of God's Spirit, is telling us something about the redemption that he's anticipated. And he tells us, first of all, in verses 76 and 77, about the work of John. And in the last part of 78 and 79, he returns to his focus on Christ. And so what does he tell us, first of all, about John? He tells us, first of all, that this is a man who will be called prophet of the highest. And then he also tells us that he will go before the way, before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. 
And here really is the essence of his labor in verse 77. To give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. Now note in 77 the connection there. He will give them the knowledge of salvation by what? By the remission of their sins. Now that word by there perhaps would be best translated in. The word there is ain in the Greek, not dia, not through. In other words, what 77 is telling us is that John's ministry will be setting before people the true salvation of God, which consists in the redemption from sins. Which consists in the forgiveness of sins. Oh, and friend, do you see how corrective John's ministry is supposed to be? John's ministry is saying, this salvation that you're longing for, this salvation that you're looking for to be out from under the thumb of Caesar is wrong entirely. The real salvation that comes from God, the real salvation that has been promised, is that which comes through the remission of sins. That's what Zechariah says John's work is about. His work is to be a gospel preacher and to set the record straight for a generation that wants nothing from re- really from God, but freedom from Roman tyranny. No, this is really the salvation that the Lord has promised. That's John's work. But then you come, verses 78, the last portion of verse 79. To the work of Christ. And friend, I want you to notice here that first of all, Christ is called as the day spring from on high. And you could translate that any number of ways, but the idea is so very simple, especially held together with what you find in verse 79. The day spring here is a term that you would use to describe the first light of the morning, the dawning light. And note in verse 79 what that does. Well, that dawning light is shed abroad upon those who sit in darkness, who sit under the shadow of death. And that light actually has a work to it as well. That light now also guides people into the way of peace. It's a beautiful thing here because what you have here is Christ depicted as we have in John 1, as that one who alone illuminates sinners. The one who alone can lead people out of darkness and into light. But then, friend, linking these two ideas together, the work of John and the work of Christ, is that phrase you have in verse 78. And we need to recognize that this is truly a link, like a chain. This is something that holds together what he has said about John's work and something also that anticipates the work of Christ. He says that these things are through the tender mercy of our God. It's difficult to translate in the Greek because this phrase really does look forward and backward at the same time. It tells us that John's ministry is through the tender mercies of our God, but it also looks forward and tells us the same about Christ. It is through the tender mercies of God that the day spring from on high has visited us. The the tender mercies of God then are what Zacharias looks at as being central to both. This is the centrality of Zechariah's conclusion, the tender mercies of God. Now, friend, I want to draw back just for a moment and see what the text is saying to us most basically. It tells us, first of all, the significance of John. John is a gospel preacher. He is the last of the ones who would come and anticipate Christ in his preaching. All others afterward would come and point back to a Christ who has already came. But John's significance lies in this, that he is going to be truly a gospel preacher in an age when nobody else wants to hear the authentic gospel. 
But even as we're told something about John's significance, we're also told something about the uniqueness of Christ. In John, in verse 77, we're told that he will give knowledge of salvation. Through his preaching, he will show people what really is the salvation of God. But when you come to how Zacharias refers to Christ, it's entirely different. Look at verse 79 again. It's not just the knowledge of salvation that comes from the day spring from on high. It is light and salvation itself. The one can simply preach about the knowledge of salvation. The other, the Lord Jesus Christ, actually accomplishes and applies it. An entirely unique Christ. And as we said before, friend, even in the text before us, in the original and to some extent in our own translations, what stands over all of this is Zechariah's focus on the simple theme. All of these things coming only through the tender mercy of our God. And that really is the central focus. And so our theme this morning is just this, that the knowledge and application of the gospel, the knowledge and application of the gospel exalts divine mercy. I want us to see that briefly this morning under three headings. I want us to see, first of all, the mercy that is set before us in this text, the misery of those to whom it is applied, and finally, the method of its application. And so, first of all, the mercy itself. And friend, what you can't miss, as we've already said, is that it is this mercy in verse 78 that is central to Zechariah's focus. And in Zechariah's thinking, it really functions like a fountain. If there is any benefit to John's ministry, and if there is any benefit to the work of Christ, it is because it flows from this fountain, this tender mercy of God. Now that, I think, friend, hits us very easily as we look at this text at first brush. But what we can't miss in verse 78 is the phrase as it lies in the original. Now the words tender mercy are things, are words that we come across all throughout the Old and New Testaments. But what we miss is, is the fact that Zacharias uses this particular, well, gives us this phrase in a very particular way. He gives it to us in an idiom that is very rare in Scripture. You could translate this literally from the original to be bowels of mercy. And so reading the text, verse 78, this way, it is through the bowels of the mercy of our God that these things come to men. In Jeremiah 4, the prophet talks about his own experience. He says that from the inmost part of his heart, he is grieving for his people. But he uses this phrase. It is from his bowels that his tears and his sorrow flow. His inmost being, something that is most central to his existence. He feels it, as it were, in our own language, in his bones, this grief that he's expressing. And as you read throughout the scriptures, that's how the phrase is used. It's not used to describe some kind of tertiary interest in something. It's not used to describe something that's merely on the surface of the individual's experience. It describes something that is most central to the person himself. The inmost part of their affections, the inmost, if you will, the inmost part of their heart. And so only rarely in the scriptures are we told something about the bowels of God. The prophet Jeremiah, when he comes to talk about 
the Lord's interest in receiving Ephraim. He tells us that the Lord's bowels were moved for Ephraim. That is, his inclination was set to to speak so, so earnestly, so ardently on Ephraim that he must bring him in. And, And then whenever the church of God in Isaiah 65 are looking for the Lord's mercies, he asks, the church asks the Lord, are there any bowels, are there any mercies left for us? In other words, is there still that earnest and that ardent desire to do your people good? You see, friend, when the prophet talks about the bowels of God, he's talking about something that is inmost, something that is earnest, some inclination that is earnest in God most high. And what's striking is that's the phrase that Zechariah uses to describe the mercy of our God. The mercy that imparts this knowledge of salvation. The mercy that brings the day spring from on high to a world of lost sinners. Bowels of mercy are the fountain of that grace. What that teaches us, friend, is very simply, simply put, it's just this, that all of the mercy and the grace of God emanates from a perfect, intrinsic inclination of love. All of the grace of God that is through Christ emanates from a perfect, intrinsic, you could even say intense, inclination of love. And you might say, well, wait a second. Our confession, we believe, rightly tells us that God is neither without parts nor passions. And so how do we make sense of the scriptures talking about the bowels of God? And God earnestly desiring to do something. Even intensely desiring to do something. Thomas Morton, uh, writing in the 16th century, I think helps us here. He says, if you mean by affections, sudden, vehement perturbations, such as we see usually in men, rising and ceasing as occasions as objects are offered, then there are no affections in God. For there is nothing in him at any time that is not always in him, and that hath not been in him from all eternity. And so what you see, Morton is telling us, we can't think of the bowels or the affections of God as we might think of a man, where man is simply moved instantaneously, almost moment by moment, and almost without any reason to respond to something set before him. That's not how we're supposed to conceive of God in this moment. He goes on to write, but if we mean by affections constant, yea, eternal acts, motions and inclinations, For even these two latter terms, although improper, must be used for want of better of his will. Not stirred up on a sudden like a tempest by this or that particular object, but settled and permanent. Arising arising from the device, not arising from the device, diverse nature of things, but agreeable thereunto. In this sense, we may truly say that there are affections in God. For he doth truly love and embrace good, and likewise hate and abhor whatsoever is evil. You see, what the confession is saying is God is not a patient. When God is disposed, inclined to something, it's not because there is an object that's operating on God and eliciting those things from him. But no, the love of God emanates from himself eternally, without diminution, without change, and always from his own free disposition. His free inclination, that's Morton's point. When we talk about the love of God in this sense, when we talk about the bowels of God, that's what we're supposed to understand. 
Not something that rises and falls like man's imperfect affections. But something that is constant, reasoned, ordered by our infinite and our perfect God. Now what does that mean, then, friend, as we look at this text? As we look at this text, we're supposed to see here, then, and as we look through all of the scriptures, when God has said to have an intense desire for something, we're not supposed to conceive of it in human terms. But friend, whatever is good and whatever is true in the human experience is actually made perfect in God. In other words, friend, when the prophet here tells us that the bowels of God are bowels of compassion, that he he ardently desires to vent this mercy, friend, we're supposed to understand that it is more than the human experience, not less. It's very much like how the psalmist reasons in Psalm 94. Shall not he who has formed the ear hear? Shall not he who has formed the mouth speak? Well, friend, if there is any real mercy that obtains among men, if there is any real desire and any real love among men, who put it there? It is only Jehovah, Most High. And so we're supposed to understand that the mercy of God is greater than any mercy that could be shown to men. That inclination to show mercy on the part of God is greater than any inclination to show mercy on the part of men. These bowels of mercy, friend, are not less than human experience. They are more than that. Perfect, perfect. Without diminution, without change. And friend, you shouldn't miss that they are also intense. They are infinite and they are perfect. Now friend, I stress that because I think too often we in the Reformed forget that. But this is the way the scriptures speak to us about our God. A God who is actually disposed, really disposed in love toward his own. Really disposed to vaunt his mercy on undeserving sinners. But friend, as we make this point, I'd stress to you also here that what you have in this text is this idea that that just as you have in the prophet, the Lord's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And you remember in the prophet, that, that phrase comes to us in the very context that we're thinking of this morning. The mercy of God. You see, it's like the prophet in Isaiah 55 coming to Israel and saying, the Lord saying, I will pardon your sin. And he's reasoning with people here who have some sense of the guilt of their transgression. And they can't imagine that their sins would ever be pardoned by such a holy God. Their sins being so evil as they are. And you know the prophet's response to that is the very thing that we've been hinting at. The Lord's mercy is greater than yours. His thoughts are greater than your thoughts. Higher than your thoughts. Because His mercy and His grace are higher than whatever you've known from men. His bowels of mercy, so to speak are greater than any that you've ever seen among the sons of men. That's the point of Scripture, friend, when we think of the grace of God. Oh, and so, beloved, what do you have here? You have a striking moment where the infinite God describes himself as one who burns in his inmost being to vaunt mercy, to show mercy to those who sit in darkness. As we look at this text, friend, we can't miss the fact that we ought to be held in awe 
but even how these things are communicated to us. That our infinite and our holy God actually desires to show mercy. As the prophet puts in Malachi, delights to show mercy. We can't think either of this mercy as being simply corporate. It is personal as well. In Luke 15, you have the parable of the lost sheep where he goes after the one. Christ goes after the one to show this mercy. In Hebrews 8, we're told that the new covenant promised in Jeremiah 31 is to each son and daughter that they would receive the forgiveness of sins. The mercy, this intense desire on the part of God to show His mercy is not merely to the body as an amalgam of of indiscriminate people, but it is to people individually considered as well. Such that even the Apostle can say in Galatians 2.20 that the Lord Jesus loved Him personally, loved Him and gave Himself for Him. This intense desire, friend, is not just for the church corporate, it is even for those individual members who constitute her. You can't miss that either, friend. And that also leads us to that wonderful moment where we're supposed to marvel at this text. When the Lord elected those who He would show mercy to, it was not an indiscriminate group, but names. He had names, friend, souls in mind. When His vows of mercy were moved. Some of you, friend, this morning can say that you're in this text. Some of you can say through the Lord Jesus Christ that you know something of this. That a perfect, intense, eternal love arrested you and holds you still. That brings us to our second point and that is the misery from which this mercy takes sinners. I want you to notice, friend, the phrases that Zacharias uses here are striking. He says, first of all, that he is a God who is going to show mercy By doing what? Well, he says, first of all, that he's going to give knowledge in verse 77 to his people. And then he says in verse 78 that this day spring from on high visits us. And of course, he's referring there to the church underage, of which Zacharias stands a priest. He's thinking of the Jews, the covenant people of God. And he's saying, the Lord is going to send his prophet, the last of the prophets, John. And he's going to send Christ to the house of Israel. And he's going to show grace to us. What was striking about verse 79 is he shifts to what you have in Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. To a prophecy where Christ will be shown to the Gentiles. Those who sit in darkness under the shadow of death. That's a prophecy Isaiah gives about the Gentile world. But what's striking, friend, is Zechariah describes the misery of those who are to be saved. At this point, he makes no distinction between Jew or Gentile. He makes no distinction between the two. Yes, Jesus and John are sent first of all to the house of Israel and to reclaim the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But when he comes in verse 79 to enlist a prophecy that's for the Gentiles, he includes even the church underage in the misery described there. In other words, friend, universally it's true that sinners sit in darkness, in the shadow of death. They require illumination for the way of peace. I want to stress this just for a moment. Friend, this grace, this arresting grace, this vaunting of the vows of divine mercy comes even to the most wretched 
of sinners. If Zacharias is thinking of the church underage, he's looking at a, he's looking at a company of hypocrites. You know that. Friend, how does Christ and how does John describe the generation to which they've been sent? A generation of vipers, a generation of hypocrites. In Matthew 11, it's so clear. John says that John and I both have come to you. And we have preached to you, but you will not respond. We have piped for you, you have not danced. We have mourned for you, you will not mourn. They are unresponsive, they are a recalcitrant generation. And yet here, friend, you remember from the Gospels, even from that lot... Even from generations of vipers, Christ showed mercy and saved them. Even from the vilest of hypocrites, Christ would claim souls. And friend, you can't miss this either. This includes the likes of Nicodemus. A teacher of Israel who should have known these things. Who should not have been deceived by the false gospels that were being pandered around him. No, he was deceived nonetheless. Even though a teacher of Israel, and yet Nicodemus is saved. Or take a Saul... Who was trained under the law, who knew the law so well. And not only, not only a hypocrite then, but also a man who persecuted the church of God. This mercy is applied to him, even him. Even the vilest of hypocrites here will see this mercy. This day spring from on high will even enlighten them. And friend, that should stagger us. Especially when we look at the scripture account of hypocrisy. God hates it. He despises the hypocrite. In Psalm 50, the man who takes up God's covenant in his lips, but has no business doing so, is rightly rebuked. In the New Testament, when those who would claim the gospel in Hebrews 10, who would trample upon the, upon the blood of Jesus Christ. Well, friend, those ones are hypocrites. That's how the Lord describes them. Those who trample upon the Son of God. And yet in this text, we're told that even they... We'll know something of this mercy. And if that were enough, friend, I want you to notice how Zacharias goes on to describe these people. In verse 79, he says that they are those who sit in darkness. What's striking is one commentator emphasized, he doesn't say that they're walking in darkness like the apostle does in other places. They sit in it. Complacent comfortable in it, in a sense even delighting in it. And friend, that is the human account. Not only are we hypocrites outside of Christ if we stand under the preaching of the gospel, but as Zacharias tells us, without Christ, we're those who delight in the darkness in which we sit. What's right, my friend, is that, of course, what the scriptures teach us. We are a people who are like dogs who return to their vomit. Pigs who return to wallow in the mire. In Psalm 14, we're described as those who are fools. Who think that we're wise, of course, in our own estimation. But people who will not even seek the Lord. We have no inclination, no desire after holiness. We sit in our filth. We sit in our sin quite comfortably. It's even to these that Christ comes. It's even to these that the Lord has bowels of mercy for. Not only those who are hypocrites, but even those who had some delight, real delight in their sin. 
Zechariah says the Lord was even moved intensely and earnestly to show mercy to the likes of them. And friend, what's striking about that is we warm to a close here. You find here that these are those then who rightly are under the shadow or the sentence of death. They are those who are condemned already. And you see, friend, they have even the tokens of divine wrath all around them. As the Apostle says in Romans 1, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness, not in the future, but even in the present, is his point. And yet they still sit in the darkness. They're still happy to be and to delight in sin. Even the chastening of God will not move them, will not turn their desires away from them. And so they're rightly under the shadow, under the sentence of condemnation. But even still, there are bowels of mercy in God for the likes of them. We close with our final point, and that is the method of this mercy. John is told here that he will be one who will be a preparer of the ways of the Lord. If you remember our comments of Mark's gospel, we're told there that the preparation is that of removing anything that would, that would be an obstacle to the coming of Christ. And of course, what we don't mean there is that John is removing any providential hindrance. He's talking to the people whose hearts were stony. He's talking to people whose hearts needed to be cultivated. And how? Cultivated with the gospel. That they would be led to repentance and, and they would already be exercising faith in Christ. So that when he was revealed on the stage of this world, they would rejoice and cry, Hosanna. That's the preparation that John's called to. A, prepar- a preparation of repentance. Calling them to repentance and faith. That's his calling. But then, friend, I want you to notice as you look at verse 79. Christ is also doing something else. He's the day spring from on high, visiting us, first of all, drawing near, and then giving light. Giving light. The method, first of all, is to send out the preaching of the gospel. And then, through Christ, and through the ministration of the Spirit, its application, the actual giving of that light and salvation promise. I just want you to notice this, friend, just very briefly. You see how everything points back to Christ only. John can preach about salvation to be had in Christ, but it is only through the day spring from on high, like the sun rising and the rays emanating from him, that this salvation would come. Only through Christ. That's the gospel that Zacharias believes. The gospel that John will preach. All things redemption only through Christ. The forgiveness of sins in Christ. The Apostle puts it, God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you everything only and in this Christ. That's the gospel that John will preach. That's the only Christian gospel. And friend, why is that? I want us to meditate on this as we close. It's the very thing that you had in Isaiah 42. This gospel shows us that intense desire to demonstrate mercy, to show and exalt mercy through Christ's power. Because, friend, he gave, the Lord God gave his own son. Isaiah 42, the son in whom he delighted. He gave his own son 
to hell-deserving sinners to save. Every part of the gospel, friend, you can't miss this, is to exalt the free grace of God. Everything. And if we weren't people who were so often quick to oversimplify the gospel, too quick to fall into the temptation to, to make it so that we diminish the freeness of divine grace, we would better understand this text. Friend, every part of this text screams that this gospel is supposed to exhibit these vows that God has to show mercy. Every part of it from start to finish is to exhibit that God really does have this desire to show mercy to those who come to Him through Christ. Every part of it. And so, friends, sometimes we miss it when we, 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 we so narrowly define the covenant and think that it's because, the covenant, because of the covenant God loves us. No, friends. The covenant exists because God already loved His people. The covenant doesn't coerce God to love His own. The covenant is the product of His eternal love. The emanation of His eternal love for His people. But we also limit it in another sense. If we forget that every part of this gospel was made freely by God in His decree to exhibit the grace of God. And this is perhaps contested, but it shouldn't be. I'll put it simply in the words of Samuel Rutherford. He writes, God, if we speak of his absolute power with respect, without respect to his free decree, could have pardoned the sin without a ransom, and gifted all mankind and fallen angels with heaven, without any satisfaction of either the sinner or a surety. For he neither punishes sin, nor tenders heaven to men or angels by necessity of nature, as the fire casts out heat and the sunlight, but freely. Only supposing the frame of providence and decrees of punishing and redeeming sinners that now is, the Lord could not be steady, but be steady in his decrees. Yet this is but a necessary conditional. And at the second hand, he goes on to write, and friend, we can't miss this. Our Lord contrived this brave way to out his grace on us. He would not have love to lodge for eternity within his own bowels, but must find out a way to put boundless mercy to the exchange or bank that he might traffic with love and mercy for no gain to himself. And therefore, freely our Lord came under veil and lovely necessity to strain himself to issue out love in giving his one son, he had not another, to die for man. He framed the supernatural providence of richest grace and love to buy the refuse of creatures, foul sinners, with an unparalleled sampler of tender love to the blood royal of heaven, the eternal branch of the princely and kingly Godhead, to make him a ransom to justice. You see what Rutherford is saying here. Oh, beloved, you can't miss this. He's saying is there was no coercion on the part of God when he sent Christ. All that he did when he, de- when he decreed the gospel was to decree the way that would most exemplify the mercy and the grace of God. As Rutherford put it, puts it, to out the grace of God to a world that would otherwise not know it. Every part of this gospel then is one of free grace and free mercy in its decreeing and in its application. Every part of it is to show us just this. That for his people there are bowels and intense desires to show mercy to his own. Yes, they're perfect. They're eternal. But friends, they're there. And the question that's set before us this this morning is simple. Do you believe that? 
Do you believe that every part of this gospel was free? That even the way in which sinners were saved was simply that you might see the freeness of this grace and the lavishness and the lavishness of it. We close with this. You have in verse 80 a striking moment where we're almost jettisoned into the future by several decades. Where John the Baptist is now back in the center of our focus but quickly taken off the stage. The child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his showing in Israel. Why? Well, of course he's there because it is not his time to stand up. It's not his time to be revealed to the world. But even in the, even in the account itself, this functions as a reminder. Even in this moment, he gives way to Christ, who is to be born in chapter 2. You see, everything in this text and everything in every text of Scripture points us to the excellency of Christ. And as the one who alone, the one who alone exhibits the bowels of God's mercy. Amen.